Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our webinar on resilient agriculture, value chain collaboration for a climate smart food system. We are going to try and make sense of that title. I'm going to ask each panelist to say a very brief sentence about who they are when we start off. But our objective today is to talk about resilient agriculture, value chain collaboration, uh, but through a practical lens. What does that actually mean? So I'm going to ask Jay and Janelle from a Kellogg and General Mills point of view to share some of their headline approaches. Then we're going to talk a bit about what do we mean by the shared landscape? Um, really, that's, I guess, a paradigm for collaboration. We'll talk about some of the measurement and technology issues. We're going to talk about what demand customers can do to help drive change. How does it change how we collaborate and work together? What is meaningful collaboration? I've heard one senior exec say recently that we're all pretending to collaborate and we're not really doing it properly. So there's an interesting challenge for our panel to address. We're going to talk about what this means for things like co-investments. Uh, how do we stop this stuff being called greenwash? Uh, and how do we get to better shared targets, KPIs and metrics? How do we avoid the unintended consequences of everybody asking the same farmer for the same carbon and all of the issues that come with that? And then finally, we're going to try and address how we turn this into a business opportunity. This is very complicated stuff. A lot of our speakers and panelists, they more or less get to grips with it, but it's a fast moving target. So how on earth are we supposed to explain all this stuff to investors and boards and CEOs who like to have everything on one PowerPoint slide without too much complexity? So that's something we'll finish off on. But all the way through, I'm going to ask our panel to use practical examples to bring this to light so it's not just an academic type conversation. Let's start out by talking uh, about where we are from the point of view of Kellogg and General Mills. Janelle, let me turn to you first. Thanks for joining us from the Kellogg Company. Perhaps you could start by just sharing some of your headline kind of commitments, approaches and, and collaborations in this space that we are calling in this webinar, we're calling resilience, but we could call it some other things as well, couldn't we, Janelle? Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Toby and team. It's really great to be here. Greetings uh, from Battle Creek, Michigan and the Kellogg Company. Like I said, it's a really important conversation. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Just briefly, a little bit about Kellogg and our commitments. Our company was founded in 1906. Our founder, W.K. Kellogg, was an early philanthropist and conservationist, and he truly believed that running a good business was doing good for society. And that promise of a better day has guided us for over a century. So today, our ESG strategy is called Our Better Day's Promise. Just before I get into regenerative agriculture and restorative agriculture, let me just talk a little bit about our Better Days Promise. Um, through our specific Better Days Promise, we have a commitment to achieve better days for over 3 billion people um, by the end of 2030. And we're doing that in four consecutive ways. The first is that we're looking at hunger. We have a rich history and longstanding history of supporting and advancing feeding programs, including a particular uh, for children as well, too. Our second priority is around well-being, and that's how we nourish with our foods. Our third is our work to promote and infuse equity, diversity, and inclusion through our, through our community work, our employee work, and also with our regenerative agriculture work as well, too. And then finally, that brings us to the topic of today, which is around sustainability and regenerative agriculture. We have a role to play in addressing climate change through our commitment to sustainability, we're committed to sustainable packaging, supporting energy efficiency, reducing greenhouse gases, and continuing to drive responsible sourcing and protecting human rights, supporting biodiversity, soil health, and organic waste. In the area of ingredients in our supply chain, 
we are focused on building climate and biodiversity risk and resiliency into our ingredient materiality process. And we prioritize regenerative agriculture practices in our origins farmer projects for our most impacted ingredient supply chains. We have identified 12 ingredients we consider priority ingredients. And I'll share a little bit of those stories uh, here with you this morning with some of the partners on the phone as well. But as part of that responsible sourcing strategy, we have committed to support over 1 million farmers and workers globally, especially women and smallholder farmers by the end of 2030. And since 2015, our Kellogg's Origins programs, which is what we call our, our, our local-based direct investment supply shed projects, Kellogg's Origins projects, we've partnered with over 445,000 farmers in 29 countries. Our work includes programs to boost their yields, improve livelihoods, while also taking steps to help promote biodiversity around the world. Much of these uh, 40 different programs help farmers implement conservation practices through regenerative uh, food systems for the future. One of the key projects um, that we'll probably talk a little bit about today in partnership with Anastasia and some other partners from Syngenta um, and some of our, our local suppliers as well in Louisiana will be our Kellogg Ingrained Program. It's a five-year, $2 million investment that we've made um, to help support uh, growers, rice growers in Louisiana, reducing the greenhouse gas benefits. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that and the benefits of regenerative agriculture in a bit. Thank you, Janelle. A quick question before I hand over to Jay. How often do you use this term resilience with regenerative? Are these interchangeable terms? Which is more understandable at the higher level? Because they're not quite the same thing, but they also have a lot of overlap. I feel like it really depends too on the audience that you're speaking with. I mean, potentially for talking about consumers, you know, resiliency potentially, but probably more about supporting farmers um, and soil health and water conservation, those types of things. But I definitely think um, internally for us, uh, probably resiliency. Um, if you think about supply chain and supply chain continuity, I would say resiliency um, would probably be the, the greater word because um, obviously, we're talking about, you know, the health of community health, long-term health of the company um, and the sourcing regions, the communities that we partner with. And then maybe when you're working with growers and um, some of our NGO partners as well, too, I think those terms resonate as well as regenerative agriculture. I think the definition, right, for regenerative agriculture is still evolving. It probably depends on the audience that you speak to. Jay, I'm guessing it's the same sort of thing for you. Um, so interested to hear your views on that and then an overview of kind of where you are at the moment in this space. Yeah, thank you, Toby. Um, uh, just addressing that first question, I think we use regenerative agriculture as a key term. That's kind of the focus of, of my role at General Mills on the Global Impact Team. Um, but we do talk about resilience as well, given that is one of, I think, our, our and many other targeted outcomes and not necessarily resilience of agriculture, but, but more so I'd say resilience of ecosystems and communities, given that agriculture is a part of that ecosystem. And so if our aim is to make communities and ecosystems more resilient, then I think the benefit is the re the, re the agriculture systems become more resilient, um, the value chain as you, as you speak to it. So, um, you know, we, we talk about that in the context of our definition, but also some of the targeted outcomes we, we hope to be able to measure. Um, Jay Watson, Global Impact Team, I have the privilege of stewarding our regenerative agriculture commitment. I've been with the organization for um, 17 years and spent the first 10 in our global sourcing organization. Um, so we have a, a small mighty team working on regenerative agriculture, um, both on the research and science side, as well as the global impact. If you think about 
sustainability in our philanthropy organizations coming together. So um, thankfully, I have a bit of a blended finance mechanism to be able to steward philanthropy and business investment into our regenerative agriculture strategies and programs, um, all in support of our 1 million acre commitment that we came out with in 2019 um, to advance regenerative agriculture on 1 million acres of farmland. Um, and, you know, that's important. It's material because I think it represents roughly 30% of our total um, acreage exposure. If you're only looking at the acreage that's required for our crops, but of course, you know, the crops grow in a system. And so if you include all those rotational crops, it's actually uh, a smaller percentage and a much larger kind of um, land print as we think about it. And so our approach is, is, is to not only invest in our supply chains, but to invest in the broader supply shed and landscape. And uh, that has really been driven by my experience in sourcing and not wanting to um, overly strict our flexibility for our global sourcing organization and being able to purchase um, ingredients and commodities from where they need to in a given year, but also driven by our value of doing the right thing all the time. Um, that's been key to our organization for the last 155 years, um, really thinking about doing what's right for our supply chain, but also for the, the broader landscape um, leading and lighting the way for others who maybe not as far ahead or maybe don't have the resources that we do at General Mills. Um, and so what that looks like, I think, is taking some of our early pilot insights and learnings um, and then uh, transitioning our programs to be from General Mills led to be more so General Mills funded and supported, led by local program implementation partners or NGOs that really can invite co-investment. Um, from many other peers, partners up or down the supply chain. Um, examples that we've come out with publicly are things like the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, right? The ability to grant um, dollars locally to organizations who really can put technical assistance capacity on the ground. We think that's one of the big, big barriers to our widespread adoption is, is the know-how. There's a lot of focus on financial assistance, but our belief is that Financial assistance in the absence of understanding is, is an ineffective deployment of resources. And so we put a lot of our, our focus on creating a really holistic surround of producer support with financial, technical, social, cultural support, uh, measurement, the science. You know, we have a fantastic um, team of PhDs working with um, folks at Regrow, others in the research community to kind of study what happens in different contexts when you deploy uh, regenerative management techniques what happens to the targeted outcomes, I think we all know very well. Um, and so trying to position our programs to invite co-investment, um, trying to uh, seek to impact broader landscapes and ecosystems with our investments. And of course, we can't do that alone. And so it, it's a natural opportunity for collaboration, both within the agri-food system stakeholder set, but also more broadly, if you think about multi-sector collaboration, when the focus is on ecosystems and communities. And so um, we're probably just scratching the surface on some of those more novel differential collaborations that are inviting a lot more players in um, with the idea that that's the way that we're going to get to scale um, in shared landscapes, in shared ecoregions, and um, just really pleased to have the part opportunity to partner with Anastasia and the Regrow team to try and measure all that, right? So when we talk about trying to impact ecosystems, landscapes, um, supply sheds, ecoregions, um, the, 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 the core belief is still that we need to bring measurement and monitoring to substantiate and quantify what's possible 
um, when there's regenerative agriculture techniques deployed in different contexts. So apologies if that was a little bit long, but that's a, a high level overview and summary of our work at General Mills um, in the regenerative agriculture space. And of course that's nested within a much broader focus on people and planet um, and our global impact team that I sit on. So. Jay, thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you've learned about collaboration on the ground a bit later, which I know General Mills has, has learned a lot about in the last five years. Anastasia, uh, turning to you, Jay mentioned a number of terms there, which might mean the same thing. You know, the shared landscape is a nice term, though, isn't it? Because it kind of it does what it says on the tin. We know we, we know what we're talking about. How well known is that term at the moment? What's your understanding of it? And then let's talk a bit about the sort of measurement and technology angles that, that Jay mentioned. We can't have any progress until we know what the data is. So Anastasia, looking forward to some comments from you. In terms of the different terms, I think it's a really good uh, topic for discussion because if whilst regenerative is the how, resilience is, I'll come back to Janelle's uh, points here, is the outcome, right? And what Jay was talking about also is the resilience for the community. And at Regrow, we really... Uh, treat that word as a supreme word at the top of how we think about uh, the whole sustainable, regenerative, resilient kind of structure. Um, because, of course, we need regeneration to get into a place where we can feed the growing population. Uh, so we cannot simply sustain what we've been doing. Uh, so uh, regenerative is the, the practice that draws our attention. Uh, and it's very versatile. Uh, for many uh, of those in attendance at today's webinar, you, of course, uh, know just how uh, versatile regenerative practices are. But regenerative also seems to be a little bit of a loaded word um, because uh, regenerative also may mean to farmers uh, that the um, opposite is implied for other more conventional systems that haven't transitioned yet. And I believe that's... Um, beside the point of what we're all trying to achieve. Ultimately, the outcome that we find and so are so passionate about is the cross-industry collaboration, all the way from the farmer and all the companies that work with the farmer, all the way to the supermarket shelf um, that no doubt we'll talk about, or the plate. Uh, and just the collaboration we can, can see from it um, happen naturally because we all depend on ultimately the resilience of the food of the food system to sustain the growing population in the world, and that affects all of us, all of our businesses, the farming businesses, the food manufacturing businesses, the retail businesses, all of them. Um, to us, the shared landscape is kind of how Regrow sees the uh, sees the world in implementation. Uh, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time understanding the traceability for our partners. Uh, in some cases, you have a direct vertical supply chain, um, and, uh, and that's uh, great to implement a program into. Uh, the impacts are uh, demonstrable clearly. Uh, and in uh, some cases, you source um, from a distributed supply chain, which actually is extremely resilient. That is by design. The global food web is extremely resilient. As a Ukrainian, I can say, you can see what happened to Ukraine and, and the food system was withstanding that challenge because it is resilient, because it is interconnected. So for us, why is that possible? And where do we come together on the shared landscape? Well, farming 
is is something you can see from the plane when you're flying over it, driving through. Uh, it's something you can see through satellite imagery. It's something on the map. And everyone collaborates in that shared landscape. We all, in a way, terraform the landscape uh, in the way that we're farming it. Um, and now uh, we can collaborate in this shared landscape, whether it's the rotation of sorting. So one company sources one crop that comes from that field and next year it's a different crop, it's another company sourcing it, or it's a crop standing side by side in those fields. That's where the shared uh, landscape is and the investments at that level and scaling the practices uh, just like I'm sure James and I will talk about today, how can we share what works um, is, is definitely where we see a lot, of, a lot of collaboration. But the crux of that is having the shared understanding of how do we baseline what currently is the uh, impact that we have? What is the aspiration? What is a desired impact? How can we get to the same definitions uh, on the numbers side? not necessarily defining regenerative agriculture in one paragraph or the other and getting to agree on that. There's things that you can measure uh, that you can agree on are important, whether it's the hectares of, of practice adoption or whether it's the uh, tons of uh, CO2 equivalent, whether it's the hectares uh, under uh, nature and restored habitat or the, the water quality and water quantity. Those are the things we can now measure. Those are the things we can now see in the landscape. Those are the now the things we can not only take shared custody, but actually finance. Because something you can measure, you can bring on your PL, you can agree with the partners. How can you forward finance change? So we see the measurement reporting verification systems, um, such as what we provided Regrow, play a huge role in unlocking this paradigm shift, not only unprecedented level of visibility, you can look into supply shit and see your emission factors. They're real. They're this year's emission factors. They're for this crop. They're from the fields that grew this uh, crop this year. But you can also um, apply it through the perspective of what can I now do to change? If I can uh, estimate what the outcomes would be, I can co-invest in those better outcomes with my partners. This has never been possible before. So we're not just looking at practices or outcomes, we're looking at both and we can align around them because we're starting to get shared language of science and numbers around it. So it all comes back down to what you can um, measure, you can manage. Thank you, Anastasia. So many questions. Um, we started running agri-tech conferences about seven or eight years ago. That's now turned into the other things we do. And it's incredible to me how it's changed in that period and I can remember doing my first one of these conferences about 20 odd years ago, and everything was on Excel with agronomists. And that was about as far as we got. We're now at a stage where I'm told you can look at soil carbon to a depth of half a centimeter. You can zoom in on a square meter of land. The everywhere we turn, there's a new technology provider, new satellite imagery. It, it really feels like we're in a technology revolution for visibility, which is fantastic. But what are the limitations of this at the moment? How far is technology taking us in the landscape at the moment on the measurement side? Because I think it is important that people understand not just what technology can do, but what the limitations are. So we don't get all kind of <laughs> enthusiastic about technology being a silver bullet, um, which we've, you know, we've been down that road before. So just give us a sense of context there, Anastasia. Usually the way we think about it is uh, through the lens of data availability and therefore the ability for the science to represent what these natural ecosystems are, are going through. So the way that we approach it at uh, TreeGrow 
um, we see this uh, inputs and outputs. I discussed practices and outcomes. Um, to your question, let's take two examples to illustrate to be your question of where the science boundaries are. Uh, very recently, maybe uh, three to four years ago, uh, you couldn't actually get a fairly accurate, with the addition of uncertainty, estimate of soil carbon on the landscape without uh, soil sampling. Right now, the models exist, such as regrowth model that are approved by regulators, such as Climate Action Reserve and others, uh, to actually do that at scale. Before, you could only monitor practices. So you had to stick to practices, do a lot of soil sampling. The scalability of that is very, is very different. Uh, on the other hand, if we look at biodiversity, this is the topic we spend a lot of uh, time uh, developing. We had, uh, you know, R&D in this space for a very long time. And finally, um, since the Montreal COP in the uh, uh, end of last year, uh, we now see the really the conversion of interest into more a tangible uh, quantified uh, metrics. Uh, we are, uh, with biodiversity, not at a point where science can quantify all of the benefits yet because the landscape is so complex. But we know what seems to be important set of practices that you can observe on the landscape or a certain uh, set of metrics. For example, what you can monitor is the uh, number of uh, hectares under the natural or restored habitat, the diversity of that habitat. So do you have the same species set of uh, trees, for example, or do you have all the different uh, areas on the farm, pollinator habitats, uh, the hedgerows, etc. And then capturing that information is the first step for us. Uh, to also start understanding what is the biodiversity implication. Uh, of course, we start understanding water quality and what are quantity implications better. Um, but the science is uh, definitely not a, it's not magic, right? You need to collect data, you need to uh, calibrate models and you need to see how well they perform. And once you're confident with them, you roll them out. Uh, to your point about seeing uh, soil carbon half a meter uh, down into uh, the ground, as someone with PhD in remote sensing, I would say that's uh, not where uh, science has, um, you know, superbly uh, proliferated. We can definitely see the a landscape of practices on top of the soil, what's planted, what's cover cropped, how is it cultivated. Uh, but then uh, usually you would uh, only sense uh, the uh, moisture in the top layer of in the top soil. Yeah. Uh, so well, sorry, I meant I think what well, I thought I said was half a centimeter, <laughs> not, not half. <laughs> Even I'm not that naive. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, so, so this is really interesting. So we, we can start to get some really interesting proxies. We can start to measure progress, but then the big question for for Jay and Janelle and their companies is kind of so what, right? Um, what can we do in this environment? Uh, and I know, Jay, you've learned a lot about collaboration with your million, he million hectare commitment. But then, of course, you've got people you're selling your products through, you know, what we might call demand customers. So, so what's the role there? Because it's all very, you know, this is where we worry about the potential for companies to act in isolation with a great technology provider. And, and then what happens um, to, to the market demand? So, Jay, I'd love to hear a few comments on that and, and from you too, Janelle. That's kind of what we've been discussing is, is the value chain collaboration is for, you know, a retailer, a manufacturer, a supplier, uh, or agribusinesses, I should say, um, to come together and to work at addressing the kind of shared issues and opportunities 
um, within a supply chain, but uh, hopefully more moving forward in, in that shared landscape, right? That's what you what connects us all is, you know, if we're, if there's a, you know, I think wheat is, is important to both Kellogg's and General Mills. If there's key wheat sourcing regions for our businesses, that's what connects us to an agribusiness partner and supplier. That's what connects us to the retailer because that's the product connects us all. And so with commitments and ambitions in this agriculture space of the soil health, sustainable agriculture, resilient eggs, regenerative egg, um, there's an opportunity for us to not have separate programs and figure out how we invest in things together, um, how we co-invest, how we think about shared targets, shared goals. Um, you know, I think, again, we're just scratching the surface in some of that. I think there's probably some good examples out there where you see number of levels of value chain coming together, um, co-investing. There's opportunity to, to take that even further, right? To say, let's not just look at only the actors in this supply chain. Let's look at the actors in the supply chains that exist in that place. Because if it's an ADM, Cargill, or Bungie, a Kellogg's, General Mills, PepsiCo, Walmart, Target, Ajo, Delhaze, you know, we all care about that same place, whether it be wheat, corn, oat, sugar beet, dairy. And so I think that's what unites us is that common ground, literally. Um, and the opportunity, I think, for, for retailers is to, um, retailers and agribusiness partners is to, is to find that sweet spot where they can get after collaboration with as many partners as possible, kind of keep the competitiveness um, at bay a little bit, realizing that our, our ambition is shared, right? And that the resources that we depend on are also shared. Um, so behooves us all to figure out how we might work together um, to scale, to accelerate the pace of change, um, and to try to find that alignment where needed as it relates to definitions or measurement capabilities, KPIs, just reflecting on some of the conversation before, like the data is important. Soil carbon data, you know, ecosystems, the the KPIs and how those change, they, it takes time, right? So what we don't have is the luxury for all the data to be perfect. And so I think some of what we need to do is to find those key collaborators and stakeholders, find ways to get them an immersive experience on farm so they can see, smell, touch, taste, hear, so that we don't necessarily need the data to be able to get some level of initial buy-in to explore what collaboration will look like. And, and, and I think we've, we've been successful in doing that with some different partners. Thank you. Janelle, what's your experience on, with dealing with retailers? Because you know, we can put this webinar on. You guys will generously give your time. Anastasia gives her support. But if we ask three retailers to come on here and talk about this, we struggle. Right? And we see this across all the things we do across the world. And I kind of feel like it's because perhaps the retailers lack a bit of confidence. I mean, they're all very busy. You know, They're under financial pressure. But they're also supposed to be able to manage everything because they have so many SKUs. I kind of feel sorry for my friends who work in sustainability and big retailers because where do they even start? So, Janelle, what's the kind of conversations you have with them about sending the right message, given that they have, yeah, they're more time poor than than Kellogg is. I'd like, I would suggest because they have so many issues to deal with. Um, what's your experience? I'll definitely reiterate a little bit what Anastasia and Jay and just add in. I agree. This is one large food network. I like that, Anastasia. I think you use that term, food network food system. We're all part of that. It is really important for our retailer partners to send a very strong demand signal 
Um, I think that they can, Jay mentioned this, they can drive, help drive uh, common metrics. So they have some really great tools that are trying to do that, such as the thesis platform, as an example, which they've all been working on for a number of years. Um, to, the, to Jay's point, it all takes time. I think, um, you know, some of our retail partners are very involved in industry groups as well, too, like the Consumer Goods Forum, which is an um, uh, you know, global industry platform for CPG, which has major uh, retailers and manufacturers so that we can work together on some of these key issues. Um, so that's one way that they're helping drive collaboration at that space as well. Um, and then one other aspect we haven't touched a little bit too is the consumer side. Um, you know, obviously they're the closest to the consumer, right, um, at point of shelf um, or online. And I, I think, you know, consumers definitely have, a, have an interest in where their food comes from, how it's made, who are the folks, you know, along the supply chain, what do those faces look like and what are the, those voices and, um, you know, they expect that, you know, that we're all leaning in there. So it's a great opportunity to tell stories. And so um, I think, uh, you know, retailers can help us with that messaging as well, too. And, um, you know, we've had some really great examples over the last few years of those, that final kind of, if you will, collaboration right there, point of shelf for social media or in parking lot. We actually partnered um, with a major retailer um, last year on a, a, our rice program. I mentioned briefly where we've been partnering with um, Louisiana rice growers. Uh, rice is a key commodity for us. It also has a significant methane uh, contribution to a climate change perspective. So it's one of our priority ingredients. Um, and so we've been working on this uh, five-year program that kicked off last year. We had results, um, you know, come harvest uh, at the end of last year, and we were able to tell that story um, on shelf through some of our products like uh, Rice Krispies and Special K. And then we actually were able to partner with a major retailer to do about 200 um, uh, parking lot retail attainment events where we talked about soil health and supporting farmers as well too. So I think that activation um, at a consumer level and engage them in the conversation, share what we're doing uh, collectively, I think is an important role that they can play as well too. There's a big crackdown on greenwash going on. I don't know if any of you have been on LinkedIn recently, but all you see is greenwash, green hush, green you name it, insert word here, being banded around on LinkedIn. Obviously, Jay, it's got to be a concern at General Mills. How do you use the work you've done around co-investments and this, the examples of meaningful collaboration you cited earlier to kind of get away from that greenwash danger or trap? Um, that, that's a difficult story to tell, isn't it? It is. Um, but I'd say a lot of our work has been more enterprise-driven and less brand driven. I mean, I think the exceptions to that would be, you know, some of our natural organic business would be Annie's Homegrown or Epic Provisions, Cascadian Farm, um, Lara Bar, where they're, where they have, and some of them are starting to talk more about soil health and regenerative agriculture. More of it has been at an enterprise level where the work has, the work and investments have been to support that kind of enterprise wide commitment where um, what we said we're going to do is advance regenerative agriculture. And we, we, we didn't say we're going to convert, an, you know, a million acres um, because of all the challenges we talked about with measurement and science. Um, what we try to do is, is use that commitment to accelerate the pace of change, accelerate the movement in the places that are important to us. And so when we talk about the, the actions we're taking and our ambitions, it's all it's all truth and reality. There's, there's, there's no stretching of the imagination, right? It's here's the investment we're making. It's, we hope that it will do this. We'll report on, on the impact. 
Um, and I think we're very, very forthcoming with our belief that um, it's going to take um, a lot more than just our programs, our investments, um, you know, our commitment to make meaningful change. And so there's a term out there, I think that's, that's, that's newer to me called green wishing, right? Where it's like you, you're, you're, you're making commitments or you're, you're putting out ambitions that you, you really don't have a great, uh, a great confidence in actually being able to deliver. Um, and I think, I think that's probably more accurate term. What's, what's happening a lot out there. Um, and so I think the, the time is now to figure out how the strategy become, can become one and less of one, less one that's less rooted in hope and wishing and one that's more rooted in action and collaboration um, and so, you know, I don't know if I addressed your question completely, but I'd say, you know, the focus that we have on measurement, the science team that we have, you know, to, to really make sure that we're understanding the outcomes, I think gives us, you know, a strong foothold and like robust science and measurement as, um, a way to keep our work very credible. Um, but then it's, it's, you know, listening to the, to the folks on the ground, listening to producers and partners to understand what their needs are. Um, and then trying to address those needs with um, partnerships like we spoke to earlier. So talking about the, the actions and activities and not as much about the impact and the outcomes right now, I think keeps us out of that risk of, of greenwashing because we're not necessarily saying what, what it achieved, but more so what we're doing and, and why. But I guess at some point you're going to feel the pressure to talk about outcomes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think at that point, you know, what are the outcomes can, can, that General Mills can drive alone? So I think the pressure I'd like to kind of um, move the energy flow a little bit to be more in pressure on kind of shared outcomes, shared reporting, you know, like talking about that, that, that landscape level impact. You know, what is General Mills doing along with others to improve the outcomes related to more regenerative agriculture in Kansas, in Minnesota, right? So that the outcomes are more realistic, right? Uh, versus what did General Mills do alone with our investment to change how agriculture is happening, right? That's just, um, we can talk about that. It's very expensive to do. You know, it's, it's very complicated and it's not scalable, right? So we can talk about the impact and outcomes from a small pilot, but small pilots aren't going to get us the way to um, get us to meeting our commitment, nor, you know, significant impact or transformation of the agri-food system. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's the risk, isn't it, Anastasia, that, you know, General Mills or Kellogg can run around doing all the reporting, filling in all the questionnaires, all the, the very long documents to, to show what they're doing on carbon. But then you translate that onto the ground and you've got a farmer in a landscape with three different brands and a bunch of agri producers all fighting over his or her carbon. And before you know it, um, the government wants their slice of the pie. And just to keep some um, investors happy and some accountants happy, we can end up with a real mess on the ground because it doesn't really work like that in reality. So how do we solve that problem? Is it around more understanding of what shared targets in a landscape contributions to a landscape could look like what are some of the kind of kpis and metrics that we can start bringing out so we can avoid this problem of the cart driving the horse when it comes to measuring outcomes um i'll try to um also answer the themes that i'm seeing in the q a and that talk about um 
how is this accounted for um, both on the uh, practices and the outcome side? Uh, how does this uh, work with SBTI flag or GGP? And uh, what does the co-investment look like from the perspective of who gets what, Toby, which is your, your last part of the question. Um, first of all, I do encourage uh, people to, you know, shed a little bit of this lens that MRV is only about carbon and current efforts are only about carbon. It's it's truly not the case. When you have a comprehensive system for landscape analysis, for ecosystem modeling, you look at everything. Um, changing fertilizer or changing the way you do crop rotation impacts everything, impacts fertility, soil health, uh, texture, um, availability, uh, of nutrients to the next crop, uh, water quality, uh, as well as the opportunity for, for biodiversity uh, through uh, more diversified rotation. This is just me picking up on one, uh, one and a half interventions. Um, so I think when the questions are guided towards, oh, this is the carbon blinders or this is the outcome where we can get in trouble, I don't think it's justified. I believe it's important for us to measure and declare with the uncertainty that we have in the, our current measurements uh, with the best data we can access. So this would be, you know, for regrow, it will be the IPCC tier three reporting its calibrated models, uh, proxy primary or actual primary data from farms where you can demonstrate that you're tracking something you can actually change. So you're going away from default numbers in the reporting and you're using uh, the information from the landscape on a dynamic basis uh, to truly um, tie what you're measuring to what you're impacting. And every company at this stage um, should, it's like you design good OKRs. OKRs should have input metrics and output metrics. This is what a good set of metrics should look like. It's not one or the other. Um, because if you just devise the metrics around outputs, you can miss the how, the important how, the co-benefits. If you just look at the metrics around practices, you can miss the entire point of getting the practices done um, because ultimately we need to cool the planet. And then you have um, uh, you know, the two sides of the debate, which I think is uh, simply a false choice. Uh, we are getting uh, with a, a point to a point with science where we can uh, measure and estimate transparently. We can provide uh, the assurances that are phased so we're a lot better at understanding total carbon impacts compared to biodiversity and water quality. But those are the science pieces that are maturing. Um, so when we look at who owns it then, so if you agree on the number, you calculated that number, um, you agree on the methodology, the regulator approved it, uh, you know how to account separately removals, reductions, and all these things that uh, the guidance needs you to, to be able to do, great. Um, then uh, there is a development uh, Janelle spoke about industry bodies. Uh, there is work by um, our shared partners at SustainCert and others to help actually develop the co-investment frameworks so that when Regrow MRV uh, with any of the projects of any of the partners connects to this more uh, bigger set, uh, we can say, here are the units that got generated on these fields in these landscapes. Uh, and partners can co-invest in those. Someone usually foots the fronts the cost, right? Because you need to be able to engage the farmer. Shared risk means you you pay, and uh, not just sit back, but you pay up front. And this is what uh, brands like General Nelson and Kellogg are, are are amazing in showing that leadership. Um, but if you have a truly a shared landscape, you may have five brands co-investing. And this is, I think, will emerge. Uh, you know. 
as soon as uh, some MVPs of this will emerge this summer, and then hopefully we'll be trialing the approaches with our customers and partners uh, so that in the next uh, few years, we can really see these co-investments come to life. Uh, and I don't believe uh, you have uh, much of an um, issue with whose carbon is this because you need to have the almost the chain of custody of that intervention. You need to be able to show you invested to be able to claim it. And uh, that's the paradigm we're seeing that resolves this uh, issue. Plus minus, you know, the double counting, of course, needs to be taken care of, which will technology will help with that as well. Great, thank you. Let's turn to some questions uh, from the audience. Right at the end, I want you to address the final question I had, which is how are we turning all of this into understandable business opportunity? You know, we, we've already talked a lot of complexity. So perhaps when we wrap up, you can all end with a summary of, if your CEO turned to you or one of your major customers and said, give me 30 seconds on what you've just been talking about for the last hour and how it's a business opportunity, what would you say? So that's your your challenge at the end panel is the 30-second elevator pitch to someone who might uh, fund your activities further. But in the meantime, um, our top ready questions from Christopher Baldock. Thank you, Christopher. Um, he notes that Nestle has this target to source 50% of key ingredients from regenerative methods by 2050. We just hosted an update webinar with Nestle about this about two weeks ago, which you can find on the Innovation Forum website. And I believe they said they were up to around six, between six and 7% by their own definition of regenerative so far. Um, they've, they've publicly said they're putting in, and I believe that stat is right, 1.2 million Swiss francs over the next three years. Um, that's serious money. So uh, Jay and Janelle, now, how serious are you guys by comparison? Well, run us through your headline targets uh, as compared to Nestle. So I think there's really three areas and they're they're related, right? Um, because it's a system. So um, I think, uh, you know, I mentioned the people focus. Uh, we have a, a goal um, to engage over a million uh, farmers and workers um, in, in our sustainable agriculture journey, including uh, smallholder and women, women-owned farms. Um, so that's number one. We're about 445,000 against that. We have um, the, these origins projects, which are basically supply shed type projects um, that I talked about uh, where we're partnering up um, with suppliers and growers, NGOs, um, MRV partners like Regrow as an example, um, academic. Um, so that's one area um, is the people focus. And then another area, of course, um, there's a number of regenerative agriculture metrics, right? Whether it's uh, biodiversity or soil health or what have you. But one of the big ones, obviously, that we're focused as well, too, is around our greenhouse gas reduction, scope one, two, and three. And three, obviously, would be the, the space here. Um, and we're making a fairly good progress, reducing about uh, close to about 13% of our footprint uh, since 2015. And then um, the third area is very specifically on um, ingredients. I mentioned that we have about 12 priority ingredients uh, that we wanna responsibly source. And that definition depends of responsibly sourced really depends on the commodity and the geography of what those metrics, what's needed um, for, for that particular commodity. Um, so those are um, 12 priority areas uh, that we're focused on too. I mentioned rice as one of those also have Different programs around the globe on corn, wheat, palm, cocoa, as an example. Um, so that gives you um, an idea of uh, three different areas. Thanks very much. Uh, 
Jay, in the interest of time, and I do appreciate actually that quite a lot of your targets will be on the website. I looked at them the other day. So, you know, give give us a brief rejoinder, Jay, to the challenge of Nestle, if you like. Yeah, I think that it's it's probably not even accurate how it's represented. I think Nestle had come out publicly with $1.2 billion um, for their regenerative agriculture investment in their supply chain, right? Um, because, you know, I would say that $1.2 million, we're investing a lot more than that every year. That's a type um, of, I think, yeah. <laughs> um, and again, I, I think our approach, because of the nature of our sourcing, which is different than Nestle's, um, so there's some shared sort of challenges and opportunities, is, is again, not to focus on our supply chains, but the broader supply shed and the landscape, um, you know, related to your 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 call for the end and like how we would pitch this. I mean, I think it is all about resilience, right? And it, and it is not just supply chain resilience. It's It's business financial resilience at the end of the day. Um, and I guess my belief is that unless we're building resilience broadly in a, in a, in a landscape or a region, um, we won't have the business financial resilience. If we're just investing in our supply chains, then great. The producers in our supply chains, maybe they have the practices that, uh, meet some sort of definition. Um, but if everyone around them, if all the acres around them are still degrading and still very prone to, um, to weather or your market risk, then have we built the resiliency needed that's going to deliver benefits to our business? I don't, I don't think so. And so for that reason, we don't have targets that are focused on, you know, converting our supply chain. The majority of our business does, does go through our, I should say, the majority of our sourcing does go through agribusinesses. We don't do a lot directly with producers. Um, and then lastly, I'd say, to, to set a target like that for our supply chain, we have to define regenerative agriculture. We have to say, this is what it is and this is what it isn't. And that's not an approach that we've taken either. Um, it should be a big tent. It's a spectrum. It's not a standard. Um, it is universal principles that are adapted to local context. And again, we want, we, we want to, to be able to talk about the outcomes to your point. So getting producers to sign up for certain practices and, and checking that off and saying, okay, that acre is now there. This is this represents X percentage of our sourcing by that hasn't been our approach. Um, but it's not a bad one. I'd say, you know, we, we need lots of different approaches in the space, kind of working together in an ecosystem, right, to address the opportunities and challenges in those shared ecosystems and communities. So good on Nestle for coming out with big investment and commitment, advancing with their own supply chains. Um, I think, I think others are doing the same thing. We're we're going to be doing work a little bit differently, but hopefully it's all complementary at the end of the day and, and inviting, I guess, to to more of that co-investment and collective action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it strikes me we're, we're way too early to be doing competitive comparisons. You know, you look at Nestle's results from 30 pilots, you know, they're only just starting to come in. Unilever, Unilever has 100 pilots globally. General Mills has done loads of stuff. You know, we're building an evidence base here before we can even start to compete. But let's talk more about the drivers. Um, Anastasia, you mentioned the SBTI uh, uh, process and the flag targets come up here as a question. Um, we're waiting for the GHG protocol updates, uh, says Dave Rob. So Elena is asking, you know, apart from the drivers we've talked about, is it the SBTI flag target requirements that will really drive regen further? Is is that a principal driver we're looking at now beyond the arguments well made by Janelle and, and Jay for just a resilient supply chain? If we're posing the question whether it's the driver, 
regrow resides with resilient supply chain, as you know from half an hour ago. And uh, we definitely see more of a harmonization of reporting being a very important enabler because people should not be spending so much time figuring out all the different reporting standards and especially for companies that are multinational, which is how the food system works. Um, dealing with national standards for reporting international standards is, can be quite complex and that uh, in a way detracts the time and resources from actually doing the important work of figuring out how to invest, investing, supporting the, the partnerships. Um, I definitely would say that as a, as a partner, the MRV partner to uh, General Mills, Kellogg and others in the space, we often uh, take on the responsibility to ensure that the science uh, of whatever we're doing, monitoring, measurement, reporting, verification is done in a way uh, that is compliant with the best understanding of the emerging regulation of the existing regulation, whether that's SBTI flag, whether it's the GHGP. Uh, there's definitely a lot of commentary that went into GHGP and there are some areas that we all believe will, will need to change because otherwise they will make um, the uh, protocol just more restrictive. Um, but I wouldn't say that these frameworks uh, should be seen as drivers. And of course, Janelle and, and Jake can, uh, can uh, chime in on this. Uh, it's uh, more of a more organized travel in the same direction, uh, because what you want to see is everyone speaking some level of shared language and aligning with the same outcomes across the supply chain. That is what enables collaboration. You can see the retailers turning uh, upstream in the supply chain and saying, we have the path aligned with 1.5 degrees. We want you all as our hundreds say, uh, select uh, preferred suppliers to have that pathway. Please have it by uh, a year from now, for example. That's the shared language that this enables. Every time we have a conversation like this, we have a question that we have to address, I guess, on the, the price premium angle. It, it never goes away. Uh, Janelle, let me ask you, is there a right price premium for a regenerative crop or is that the wrong question? Uh, Janelle and then Jay. I think we need all the tools in the toolbox. Um, so I don't think it's a one size fits all um, answer if, if, you know, looking at certification as an example is a way to go or, or what have you, um, but we need all the different tools and lovers in our toolbox. And I think we need all the different company angles as well too. Everyone brings, uh, you know, different competitive advantages and insights. So I do think it's, it's great to hear all the different company um, ways that folks are tackling this, but I don't think it's a one size fits all. What we do know um, is that consumers and customers are very interested in this topic um, as well, too. Um, and like I said, consumers want to know where their products come from even more so. I think they want to know, you know, where, where how their products are grown, um, you know, who's within the supply chain, uh, what are some of those stories as well, too. So um, I think it's going to take um, all different tools. Right. Jay, it's not the first time you've been asked about this, I'm sure, today. Yeah, Janelle covered it well. I mean, I think in, in certain places, it makes sense for there to be price premium. I think, think some of the maybe the best example of that right now is the organic standard, right, where there's an organic price and many of the organic producers that I've encountered are deploying regenerative management techniques, but under the USDA organic standard. So there's a premium market for that. There's a segregated supply chain where that makes sense. We, we should think about doing that to get after, um, you know, economic resilience for producers and their communities. Um, but there's also a, a strong belief that um, there's not, at least from, from my, my viewpoint, is that there's, no, there's not a regenerative crop, 
right? There's a regenerative system. Uh, and so then how do we think about the system generating benefits that have value to society? And so that's where we've done a lot of work within ecosystem services. You know, you think about carbon, but also water, biodiversity, you know, how are we differentially compensating producers for services that they're creating for society across their entire rotation? That's different than saying you do these practices in this year of the thing that we like to buy and we'll pay you a premium for it. Um, the last thing I might note is that it's, you know, regenerative is, is talking about what it does, not what it is, right? So I'd really love to be able to pay based on performance and outcomes and not necessarily practice because there's not a guarantee that that practice will deliver the outcomes for the producer or for the, you know, the, the claiming agent. So um, those are the things that I think makes it, make it challenging to just say, we're going to pay a premium for regenerative. How are we define that? And so to Janelle's point, I think we need all those different tools in the toolbox really to be tailored to the unique context of that place, that supply chain, that ingredient, that system, whatever it may look like. Thank you. Somebody once said, I think it was H.L. Mencken said, for very complex problem, there is an answer which is clear, simple, and wrong. Uh, I think we've, we've put some meat on the bones of that over the last hour. So um, a quick final question, Anastasia, before we turn to the challenge I set you for your elevator pitch. Um, somebody said to me the other day, um, in setting, um, it's the future and always will be. Uh, um, given given the complexities, the, their point was it sounds like a great idea, and we've spent twenty years struggling with carbon offsetting, and now there's all this debate about what's real and what isn't, as there was in two thousand and seven. Um, and insetting is getting a lot of attention as a way of getting money to farmers to do the right thing that we can all benefit from in landscapes. How long is it, do you think, crystal ball time, before we can actually start seeing this at scale? Because it's a combination of accounting rules and technology plus reorientation of financial instruments. What, what are your predictions there, Anastasia? As a company that does the measurement uh, of the outcomes, the monitoring of the landscape, I think we're watching it in near real time. I would not say this is the future. I would say this is happening. Um, in answering uh, this exact question uh, yesterday at a partner breakfast uh, here in Paris, I said that uh, we definitely want to see over the next couple of years how the government incentives will also play in the role um, because um, in uh, tracking the regenerative practice adoption across very large sort of landscapes, uh, Regrow has seen that for the last you know, 10, 15 years, you can see when the incentives change, when uh, the weather conditions get more, more dire and how the adoption shifts um, on state levels, country levels. Um, so I don't believe we're in a space where the companies are feeling like they're held back um, and are not able to invest. I feel like uh, more companies are investing because uh, if you start some of these projects, it takes three years to really get going and get good at it and scale. And there's only twice those amounts of time between now and 2030. So we're definitely seeing a lot of progress. We started on time. We're going to finish on time. So let's go around the room. Um, how are we summarizing this last hour into our 30-second eleva elevator pitch that either means you don't get fired, but also might mean you get some more money? Uh, Anastasia, you first, then Janelle, and then Jay. If we want to fund the future of agriculture and resilient outcomes, um, we need to work uh, to protect ourselves from climate risk. And this is what we can invest in now, and this is why this work matters.
Great. Climate risk, Janelle. Uh, but Jay, by the time it gets to you, <laughs> everything's going to have been said. So you, you're going to have to come up with something, uh, Janelle. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that stakeholders across the value chain have definitely increased their expectations. Um, and just to name just three major opportunities that provides value creation opportunities and value protection opportunities. But let me just name three stakeholder opportunities. I mean, First, from your customers, retailers, right? There's an opportunity to capture shelf space. Um, uh, and then from regulators, there's an opportunity to maybe access tax credits. Uh, from our supply chain also, we talked a lot about building resiliency into that supply chain um, so that you capture economic benefits, but there's also consumer benefits, investor benefits. I mean, this is all about driving long-term shareholder return and value. Um, even last fund, but not least, definitely employees and talent think about attracting and retaining the best talent um, because they want to come and work for organizations um, that are focused on these topics. So um, a lot of great reasons um, to be able to focus on this. Great. Thank you, Janelle. Uh, Jay, final comment on the opportunity we can create here. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of addressed the the business um, case and the elevator pitch earlier. So, what I, what I'd like to share is just the the concept of balance and with claims with competition. Um, right now, we we it's very business led, very competitive, and I'd say um, largely extractive with the producer communities. We need to come and take something from you. Um, you know, some programs I think are positioned in a better way. Um, some programs on the, that are led by folks on the phone. But how do we move from um, kind of more extractive paradigm to one that's more contributive to shared goals and landscapes, right? Um, you know, many of you have heard me talk about contribution versus attribution. And that's, I think, some of the secret sauce to being able to get to where we need to go. And the collective we, not just food companies, the supply chain partners, but also producers in the communities. And so I think if we can figure that out in the next three to five years, um, figure out how to bring that differential collaboration to bear. Um, I think we'll be in a, a much better spot. A great note to end on. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you, Anastasia and the team at Regrow for, for supporting this webinar and making it happen. We look forward to seeing you soon at one of our events or online for a similar webinar. With that, thank you all so much for a fascinating last hour. <music>